0: We're in this series. It's all about parables, hidden in plain sight, because the, the truths that Jesus is going to unveil through the parables, and we uh, spent a good bit of time sort of laying the foundation that they're hidden in plain sight. It's it's interesting what people do to the parables, what they make them say, the things that they don't say, and how they miss what is right there. Jesus had a phrase for this. Uh, his phrase. Um, I mean, not only did he teach in parables to kind of put truth on the upper shelf, like we've said so that we have to make some effort to get to it, we make all kinds of effort to miss the truth. Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees and many of the people that listened to his parables, he said, you uh, strain out a gnat, you know, they didn't have water purifiers like we do, so they used a piece of cloth, and he said, you strain out a gnat and you swallow, does anybody know what he said? Camel. Camel that's right. He said, you go to great lengths to be sure that things are right and then you completely miss the point, is another way of saying what he said. And so we're going to take a look at one of the parables that Jesus told today. I've never preached a sermon on this parable. It's one of the reasons why I picked it, um, so that you and I could learn together. Uh, So that's that's important. It's only in the Gospel of Luke and it's kind of unique. I mean, there's some things about it that are fairly peculiar and no other parable has uh, some of these sort of features, if you will. And so we're going to jump right in because we have some room to go. And, you know, my tummy is already rumbling. But I, by the way, I did kill a few teenagers on, <laughs> on Wednesday night. Um, yeah, yeah. O- only, only in the name of Jesus, right? It was just, and with a foam dart. It was all good. I came around a corner, though, and got a couple kill shots that I thought, the old man still has it. That's good. <laughs> That's good. All right, so here's how the parable begins. We know the story. We've given it a title. Jesus didn't give it a title. We've given it a title of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, like I said, it's only in the Gospel of Luke. It's the only place it's recorded, so there's just one version that we're concerned with, and it's in Luke chapter 16. So Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, and he lived each day in what? So Jesus is setting the, the stage for this parable, and he, he gives you some clues. He, he's obviously very well off. He's a wealthy man. He mentions purple cloth. It's a, a, a color or a cloth of royalty. He doesn't say he's royalty, but it at least implies that the man feels like he's royalty or maybe has had some former position, and he lives each day in luxury. We don't know this man. He doesn't have a name Um, I think Jesus does this often in a parable. In fact, he does it most always in parables, doesn't give names, so that we can sort of see ourselves in the story. And so I think that's what Jesus intends for us to do, is see ourselves into this role. This is the the first person we meet in the parable. And then he says this, and at his gate lay a poor man named what? Lazarus. Lazarus. He was covered with sores. So there's one more clue in there about the rich man and his lifestyle. He's got a gate, and he lives behind it. That's where his house is. That's where his property is. And this is the lifestyle he has. And Jesus isn't critiquing his wealth. He's not critiquing his lifestyle. He's just giving you the facts and laying out the the basis of the story. But then he introduces us to the other person in this story, and his name's Lazarus. This is the only time in all four Gospels, in any parable that Jesus tells, that he gives anyone a name. It's the only time it happens. And I think it's important. Obviously, Jesus didn't do this uh, with happenstance or without thought. He gives this name, Lazarus, which were a, if you've read the New Testament, you have at least a little familiarity with the name Lazarus. But he uses that name to describe this, this poor man. And I think we could at least begin to draw a couple conclusions that for Jesus, poverty isn't a a condition. Poverty isn't a circumstance. Poverty is a person for Jesus. Jesus is going to, throughout the Gospels and all of his teachings, he is going to talk at length about wealth and poverty. He talks more about money than we would ever want to admit. He's going to talk about priorities and values. He's going to do it over and over and over again. In this very peculiar, unique story that Jesus tells, he gives poverty a name. And he gives it a name of one of his best friends. And when he does this, I believe he does it. So that the people who were listening then, I mean, we don't have a picture of Lazarus, obviously, but the people who were listening then, they they could see a face. They could see a person whom Jesus is relationally close to. For Jesus it's it's not a system he's addressing, it's not a it's not a, a so societal issue, it's a it's a person. And you get a little bit of an understanding of who Lazarus is. He's, he's laying by the gate, and he, he's covered with sores. Jesus moves on through the story. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and, and lick his open sores. One verse, one sentence, and yet it says so much about Lazarus' circumstances. And this isn't something we want to think about, but it's something that we need to think about just a little bit. There are are tentacles, if you will, to poverty. And poverty has many layers. Some of you, and listening online, I'm sure, have experiences in your life that would come close to poverty or maybe squarely in poverty. Some of you know people who are in poverty. But if you know much about poverty, then you know this, that, that poverty has layers and it has extenuating circumstances, and it has a domino effect. We, Donna and I, our family, our boys, we have grown up mostly middle, upper middle class in our life. And I don't know that we've experienced real poverty, us. We remember back when we first got married, I had a job, Donna had a job, we didn't have any kids, and We were trying to make ends meet and stretch every dollar we could and it was a maybe you in your early marriage years remember something like that or maybe you're going through that right now. Inflation the way it is, all of us are trying to figure out how to afford more. But I don't know if we could call that actual poverty but in one sentence, Jesus names about three issues that are almost always connected to people who experience poverty In one sentence, he mentions poor health, bad food choices, bad food opportunity, and disease. Jesus has an incredible economy of words when he tells this story. And when he does, he paints a picture of a man who is in a bad place, not good health care, malnourishment possibility of disease and all he wants is the scraps that well the rich man wouldn't even eat and so he tosses those well not to Lazarus he just longs for it and he's in anguish because of it and so we get this picture of what poverty is like I don't know if you've ever been exposed to poverty in any extended way Maybe through a trip, a mission trip, experiences with people. Maybe you know some stories. Maybe you have some intimate relationships with people that have experienced it. But when you begin to read this story, those experiences probably come to mind and you begin to think about people who struggle and the life in poverty. And we're going to try to get through this story and talk about the application of it without guilt, without shame, and without any manipulation going to be very unusual for a church service. (laughs) I don't know about you, but if you spent much time in church or grew up around church life, uh, when it comes to things like wealth and poverty, the issues of, of these that dominate much of our culture, there can be enormous amounts of guilt for people who are wealthy or have what they need or have more than they need. But guilt isn't really gonna help us change our hearts or move forward in any way. We're gonna to try to stay away from anything that smells or sounds or looks like shame because, well, shame just puts you in a place that is a distance from God and that doesn't help at all. We believe that God desires to draw close to you and that's how change happens. It's it's God's kindness that leads you to new places. It's not guilt or shame that will take you there. It's not even guilt or shame that will lead you to generosity that matters. It, be a bummer if you gave only because you felt like, well, they they said something in church and now I feel awful about myself or my house or what I have or my bank account. And that will not help at all. And so we want to stay far away from any of those things. But what we do want to do is take a thoughtful look at a story where Jesus introduces us to these two people, what happens in their life, and we get a glimpse into this nether world. And when we do... Jesus is calling us to a place of freedom. And that place of freedom is a place of love and generosity. Always, always. So I I won't go there if you don't go there. All right? And it could be that your old religious self wants to go there. It will not help you. You can give yourself a good beating up later for something that doesn't matter. Okay? But let's try to keep it in a place where God's generosity and love is center stage in the story. Because it always is always so there's a rich man we know that lives behind a gate gated community he has everything he needs he lives in luxury and then there's lazarus and he's there and he's in a bad way and his life is not what any of us would really want here's what happens next finally the poor man died and he was carried by the angels to sit beside abraham at the heavenly banquet for the jews Abraham is sort of like St. Peter for us. You know, every good joke you've heard about the pearly gates, St. Peter's there, you know, taking names and checking the roll, making sure your name's there and you've done good things, whatever the joke is. For, for Jewish people, Abraham is the same for them as St. Peter is for us. He's sort of the sentry. He is, he is evidence that you have made it to heaven. So when you walk up to the little podium, whatever you imagine heaven to be, and there's St. Peter, the Jews see Abraham, okay? And there's Abraham. He's at the heavenly banquet, Jesus will have another story about the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and he was buried and he went to the place of the dead. Now the the direct translation would be Hades. And you know, that's what Hades is what you said when you grew up in church and knew you shouldn't cuss, but you said Hades instead of the other word, H-E-Double hockey sticks or whatever you weren't supposed to say. This is an interesting word in the Greek, sheol, in the Hebrew. There's an Old Testament version and a New Testament version. It doesn't necessarily mean hell as we understand it. It just means literally place of the dead. In some stories in the New Testament, it refers to a place of punishment. This is one. In some stories, it refers to a place where people wait after they're dead. Uh, And some other meanings as well. But Jesus makes it clear that for the rich man, this is a place of torment and eternal punishment. That's where he is, and there in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Now, this happens in Jesus' parables a lot. There is this incredible reversal of fortune. And once you think about this and you read some of the stories, the parables, and we'll go through some through the summer, but this one is one of the most pointed. This person has so much and this other individual has so little. And in the course of the story that Jesus tells, everything gets reversed. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he tell a story like that? And he doesn't just do it once. He does it many, many times over. He does this because he wants you to think about what you value most. He wants you to think about your relationships. He wants you to think about how you spend your time and your money and your resources, your attention, all of these things. And he thinks that these indications, these sort of value markers, they say something about your heart or your desire for your life and what you want and how well you love and how you connect to other people. And so he wants you to feel the tension between somebody who has everything and loses it all and the vice versa, opposite direction for Lazarus. And all of this occurs, this reversal of fortune. And so what are your values about these things? The things that he begins to talk about, position, house, community, What you have, what somebody else doesn't have. How do you feel when you encounter people who are in need and you have what it takes to meet that need? These are the things he wants stirred up in us when he begins to tell this story. And they're important things. Important things for us to ponder today. Now I know, I know, guilt and shame is right at the door, isn't it? Don't let it in. It will not help. It's there to cripple you and move you further from God's love, I promise. So Jesus continues, and he says this. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. This is incredible that the story takes this turn. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in anguish in these flames. Now he has this this hope, this rich man. He has a need, I mean, it's really hot there. He's not doing well, he's just thirsty for goodness sakes. He has this hope that Lazarus could help alleviate his suffering. It's pretty ironic, isn't it? It's pointed, it's thoughtful. We feel something for the characters in this story. I am in anguish. And Abraham's response is a a tough one. Abraham said to him, son, Jewish man, remember that during your lifetime you had what? Now, is that really true? I mean, there's probably something he wanted that he didn't have. I bet there's something you want that you don't have. But relatively speaking... (coughs) You had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had what? Nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. It's a reversal, it's powerful. And then he goes on to say this: And besides, there is a a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. In other words, Rich man, there was a time when something could have been done to help Lazarus. There there was a time, but that time has passed. It's no longer possible. And so now these circumstances are set. You felt like when you were in your gated community and in your lap of luxury and had all of your needs met, you felt like that was permanent because you couldn't imagine that that would ever change, that nothing could ever get in the way of all of the things that you have and the things that you enjoyed in your life. But it did change. But now, this is permanent. Now, there is so much in this story There's so much depth and there's so much texture. It's not quite done yet. There's a little bit more, but there's so much. There's there's wealth and poverty, and we have lots of opinions about wealth and poverty, where it comes from and how we get there and how somebody else gets in the spot that they're in. You have lots of theories, and you debate them when it comes time for an election or when you look at the tax structure or when you ponder where to give your money. All of these things are at play. Position, the reversal, authority, All of these issues are factors in the story. But the heart of this story is really very simple. In fact, it's just hidden right there in plain sight. The heart of this story is that this rich man made a choice every day to go to his house and then leave again from his house and then return to his home and go to work and come back again and go see his friends and every day he passed poor Lazarus who was there begging for scraps open sores, health at risk disease ridden, awful every day he passed him and he chose to ignore him every day now, apparently, he knew enough to know his name. But this is, of course, the heart of the story, is that he chose to ignore the need right in front of him. That is the, the transgression that's central to the parable. Now, Before you feel too much empathy or too much compassion or, or before you get all judgy about this rich man, it's important for us to at least acknowledge this because this is, this is going to help us get where we need to go. And many of us think this, you know, maybe not when we're in church, but we think of this often. There are lots of reasons why the rich man might ignore Lazarus every day as he leaves and returns to his home. All kinds of reasons why. And those reasons, if we don't ponder them, then we'll have no idea how to move forward with what Jesus wants us to grab will have no idea how to apply the, the heart of this parable. And if you miss this one, then there's another dozen that are going to be tough ones for you. And so this lays the foundation for many of the teachings regarding wealth and poverty and meeting the needs of others, why we love. Lots of reasons why the rich man might ignore Lazarus every day. Uh, the first is this, and, and I don't know if we can say this out loud, and we... we certainly do in our conversations with our friends, it could be that this man absolutely believes, a rich man, that Lazarus is in a tough spot because of his own choices. And we have thought this many times before. I mean, let's be honest. Let's just play this role out. Let's play this line of conversation out that we have when we see needs in front of us. Of course he's in a tough spot, but it's because of what he did. It's exactly, I mean, let's be honest. Lazarus, Lazarus knows That if he wants a better life, he's going to need to just grab a hold of his bootstraps. He's going to need to make some better choices. He needs to get off his backside. They're hiring right down the street. Has anybody thought the same thing about other folks in the last six months? Of course it's his own choices. The reason I have the life I have is because I have worked hard. I made good choices. And I was... In the same spot he was in when we both started out, and now we're in very different places, it's because I chose wisely where to spend my money, my time, my effort, and my hard work has finally paid off. Why in the world would I help him from the spot that he's in? I mean, if Lazarus had made better choices, if he had worked for himself, if he had chose a different path, then he would be in a different spot. And he wouldn't need my help. He wouldn't need welfare. He wouldn't need you fill in the blank. Pondering all of this, I saw a quote this week that sort of, well, it stung a fair amount, and it kind of stopped me in my tracks. But I like it. Here's the quote. Some people are born on third base and go through life thinking they hit a triple. I'll just let that sit in for a moment. It's been attributed to Barry Switzer, which is a little odd because he was a football coach. Um, And I don't think he said it. It actually is in existence before that. We really don't know who said it. But it is probably appropriate when we ponder the ideas that are present in this parable. Some people are born on third base and go through life thinking they hit a triple. Here's why it stung for me. I I don't really think that I was born on third base, um, but I did grow up in an upper-middle-class family. I had both of my parents. They loved me deeply. They both gave me a sense that that God loved me too. I can't imagine what it would be like to start without that. But I had that from a very early age, as early as I can remember. We never wanted for food. We had everything we needed. Debt collectors were never knocking on our door. We paid our bills. Mom and dad worked hard to see that that happened. Dad was taken care of. He was the first in his family, his generation anyway, to be sent to school, to college. Uh, But he did so because of the sacrifice of his parents. And so I had the same experience. I, I finished my college education, which many people don't have the opportunity for, With only a tiny little loan, even on our meager salaries, we paid it off in about six months. I can't imagine what it would be like to not have those opportunities. I don't know that anybody would consider being born in Kentucky third base, but it might be first or second base for sure. I don't know what base you were born on, but I do know this that when you take time to listen to the stories of the people who are in poverty, there is something about wealth and means that begets wealth and means. In other words, when somebody who is dealing with living on the margins of poverty finds himself behind, the late fee that they have to pay isn't just a nuisance or one that they just try to argue it's out of on the phone. It it puts them behind in ways that most of us could not even begin to imagine. Most people who are in poverty, well, there's a story behind it. And most of us don't know people who live in poverty, and so we don't know those stories. But when you hear them, it sounds like the case of a series of dominoes falling. And it makes me think differently about where I was born, and maybe it might think it cause you to think differently as well. And so I reflect on my life and I consider the circumstances I'm in and maybe which base I was born on and some folks that maybe feel like they've never been up to bat. But if, if for you, um, if for you this is the first thought that you have, and I'll be honest, often it's the first thought I have, that Lazarus is in a tough spot because of his own choices, well, this would have been a a red herring that would have caused you to miss the point of the parable. It will take you down a path that feels very self-justifying, but you've missed the heart of what Jesus has had to say. And my guess is this is the deal with the rich man. He believes he's where he is because he's earned his way and deserves to be there, whereas he believes Lazarus is there because of his own choices. Psychologists call this the fundamental attribution error. There's a name for that. That's what it is. Uh, What that means is is that when I trip on the sidewalk, I look down to see the crack in the concrete. When you trip on the sidewalk, I assume it's because you're clumsy. (laughs) What it means is, is I attribute my success to my hard work and your failure to your choices. Correspondence bias fundamental attribution error it means the same thing that I adjust my understanding of reality to benefit me and we all have that tendency and so this might be one of the reasons why the rich man thinks he's justified in walking by the poor man every day but for some of us it's this other reason the suffering of those around us can be very difficult to fully face and consider thoughtfully and I don't think this is the rich man's issue based on the rest of the parable but for some of you this is exactly the issue the suffering of those around us can be very difficult to fully face and consider thoughtfully And what that means is this that that some of us have a deep capacity for empathy and when we see the pain in the world and the suffering in the world it causes such a flow of emotion and care and compassion that we become weary very quick from the ways in which we see the issues that are in this world that cause us to feel heavy and weighty. If you're prone to depression, this is probably one of the reasons why. If you're prone to compassion fatigue, this is probably one of the reasons why because you see the needs and there are many and you can only maybe make a dent in one or two of them if this is you then this is what happens in this scenario you make some efforts to help Lazarus and you meet his needs and then you go and you meet Lazarus's family and it's more of the same and you can't believe that a whole family is under these circumstances and then you see people in Lazarus's community and not only that, the people who live on this whole side of town and you just begin to feel inept and overwhelmed and compassion, empathy creates a fatigue in you. And so the only solution would be to put blinders up and not see it. And for some of you, that's exactly how you have survived because you cannot fix the problems in the world and so headlines weigh you down. Identifying kids in a school shooting based on their DNA, it destroys your heart. These are the issues that prevent us from meeting the needs around us. This is the case for some of us. Maybe that's you. I mean, it could be that we're just selfish like the rich man, but I bet there's many of us in this room that feel just like this. And it might not just be that. It could be this other issue as well. It could be that some of us are so stretched thin that we feel like we don't have anything to offer. Maybe that's you. It's a little different from the other one. I mean, empathy is a, well, it's a difficult place to stay for some of us. But some of us feel so stretched thin that we don't think we can give anything to meet the needs of the people around us. We feel like we are tapped out. We look into our cup and it's empty. And I bet some of you feel that way. And odds are, if you feel that way, then you're a caregiver already. There's somebody in your life that you have to meet the needs of. Uh, Somebody in your family that is a little bit more in need of attention, care, help, assistance. Could be a, a grandchild, could be a parent, could be one of your children. And it could be that you are so stretched financially because of the pandemic or inflation or any number of things that when you see somebody who else is in need, you absolutely know that if you give it away, that you will not have enough to fill your gas tank or pay your bills or meet the needs around you. And if that's the case, if you find yourself stretched thin, then you should know this, you're already taking care of a Lazarus. There's already a Lazarus in your life and you're meeting needs day in, day out, and odds are you're doing it with thoughtfulness and faithfulness, and it's on your mind. That doesn't mean you won't see more needs in the world, but it does mean that you are taking care of what's important right in front of you, caregivers. And if you find yourself unable to meet needs because of money, well, you should know this, and this is important and critical, because the parable seems to be about wealth and poverty, But I think it's important in our culture for you to understand this, that sometimes the best generosity doesn't involve money at all. Sometimes it has nothing to do with money. I mean, you can give money, and if you have it, and you have the resources, and you know how to use them in a way to make somebody's suffering go away, then you should. But many of us are in a position to give other things other than money. You know what's missing in your workplace and probably in family circles and among your friends. Most people don't know how to give compassion or time or attention or even listen long enough to understand how somebody feels about something. Most people don't have other folks in their life that are fully present enough to give something of their heart and love to them in exchange in a relational way. Most people listen with the idea that, you know what, as soon as they quit talking, I got something to say. Rarely do we meet individuals that check in with us, offer empathy, offer dignity and time. Sometimes the most important things you can give have nothing to do with money. And so when we think about the story and the parable and the fact that Jesus names poverty, he names a need, He gives it the name of Lazarus. This is the prayer we want to pray. Lord, help us to see the needs around us and use what we have to alleviate suffering. It's a simple prayer. It's really very simple. And it's pretty basic. I'm telling you, this parable, the truth, is hidden in plain sight. And so some of us need to use what we have to alleviate the suffering of other people. And God's asking us to do that. Some of us need to have boundaries in place so that we can meet the needs of the people that God has placed right in our path. Money, attention, doesn't matter. This is what God is calling us to. And you could begin to pray this, and I promise when you pray this, God is going to call a name to mine. He's going to put someone in your path. A neighbor's going to come out and walk the sidewalk right in front of your house. And you're going to say, Lord, I just wish you would send somebody my way. And he would say, open your eyes. They're right in front of you. The story isn't over. There's a really real quick ending. And this is important. It's really, really good. Uh, The rich man, this is what happened next. The rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. Abraham's saying, Send Lazarus to be a missionary to my family. Okay? For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. What's he saying? Warn them. Warn them about what? Warn them that they need to be compassionate to the people who are right in front of them. Tell them not to step over the homeless man. Tell them, please, tell them. You want me to send who? I want you to send Lazarus, the homeless man. Yes, he's got work to do. You want him to leave heaven and go be a missionary to your family. Abraham's response is is pretty incredible. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them, your brothers can read what they wrote. It's great. It's really, really (laughs) good. Do you like that? Do you feel it? In other words, what's he saying? What is written here is enough. It's enough. It should be entirely sufficient. God has so much to say in Scripture about meeting the needs of people around us who find themselves in a bad way. This is why the church is engaged in the refugee ministry. It's why we do the things that we do. It's why we spend the money we do in a lot of areas. That's institutional, and those things are systemic in many, many ways. Jesus seems largely unconcerned with what's going to happen with the church. He puts it in the hands of these men and trusts that God's going to do his thing. He seems largely unconcerned with the political regime and what that's going to mean for persecution. Largely unconcerned with the systemic issues. And many of you are good at addressing all of those things. That is not what this parable is about. This parable is about the person in front of you and the need that they have And God is particularly harsh in Scripture through his prophets, through Jesus, and many others. Particularly harsh for those of us who are blind to the injustices that are present in the world. And Jesus says, the need is right in front of you. So he says, no, it's written. What makes you think one homeless man is going to make a difference? The rich man replied, this is, this is powerful, the turn is worth it, okay? No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. I mean, that's rich, isn't it? Now, I just want you to just pause for a minute and grasp this. None of this happened. Jesus is making up a story. Did you remember that? He's, he, he, he created the entire thing. It's a fiction It's a parable. He makes it up, names poverty, and he creates this turn that involves not only his friend Lazarus, but also the ending and new beginning of his own life. So he says, if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. And then Abraham really is Jesus, right? Let's just call it what it is. Then Abraham says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets... They won't be persuaded even if someone, what? What's going to happen to Lazarus? He's going to rise from the dead. What's going to happen to Jesus? He's going to rise from the dead. How in the world can we read what we read and remain unchanged? And if we do, even resurrection isn't going to change it. It won't. Lazarus's or Jesus's, it's just not going to matter. And so what we want to do is hear the story as the listeners of Jesus heard it the day he spoke it. Which, you know, we can't fully, but we can step into it mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And if we step into that, then we can wrestle with this, this prayer. Lord, help us to see the needs around us and use what we have to alleviate suffering. For some of you, it's going to be stopping in the middle of the checkout line and looking at the person who's there helping you and say, thanks an awful lot, Leslie. And They're going to look at you like, how'd you know my name? And you'll be like, you know, it's on your badge. And you're going to connect with them for the five minutes that they're helping you. And if you do, I bet... Well, most of you are going to hear a life story. And I bet you're going to hear something about the tentacles of poverty, the struggle that somebody has that's in a very different place than you are. And that can happen over the course of a few minutes because you have prayed this simple prayer. Lord, help us to see the needs around us and use what we have to alleviate suffering. I promise most of our endeavors are going to come to a lot of nothing most of our endeavors, most of what we do, much of what we do, not all of it, a lot of you do so many good things, and you're going to do great things this week, and it's not going to be because you're at church or because you even read this prayer, it's because you have a heart for seeing God at work, and you walk with these eyes and these ears most of the time, but if you're anything like me, you can get into a week and think it's about you and your thing and your deal and your goals and your life and all of the things that kind of swirl that keep us stuck and concerns that we can't do anything about in the state of the world. And God is simply saying through the context and the arc of this story that there are needs in front of you. If you open your eyes, I've already given you what you need to meet that need. That's all. No guilt. No shame. No manipulation. Just people who want to follow Jesus who are willing to pray a simple prayer and then see what happens and be used by God to be his hands, his feet, his compassion, his empathy, his resources, his love, to feed those who are hungry, to clothe those who are naked, to visit those who are in prison and treat them as if you were treating Jesus just like that. That's what God's called you to. If you're a caregiver, if you are stretched thin, then know this, that God sees what you're doing and he loves the way you love the one or the two or the three that he's placed right in your path and you're doing it faithfully and thoughtfully and you see the source and you're taking care of business may God give you the strength to continue so we're going to pray this together Okay. so why don't you bow your heads I'm going to lead you through it and we're going to pray this in thoughtful ways so that as we leave this place God will in fact answer it in mighty ways Lord this is our prayer simple just like the story you told Lord, help us to see the needs around us and use what we have to alleviate suffering. That's what we want. Lord, help us to see the needs around us and use what we have to alleviate suffering. Lord, there are many in this room and many listening online that do this every day in a thousand different ways. Lord, would you continue to give them the courage to do that and to pray this with us? Lord, there's some of us that have been stuck in selfish places. The world draws us into a, a little echo chamber where we're just concerned about our own stuff. So, Lord, we lay that selfishness at your feet and we ask this simple prayer. Lord, would you help us to see the needs around us and use what we have to alleviate suffering? Lord, for those who are uh, engaged in some sort of caregiving with a, a family member or a friend or even in their jobs and they feel stretched thin, would you give them the energy they need to take another step and to do another day and, and Lord, help them to feel spiritually empowered to draw the boundaries that they need to draw so that they have the empathy that can flow for the needs that need to be met. Such a difficult situation complex task for them we pray that you give them wisdom as they walk that road Or for those of us who have resources available at our fingertips and for those of us who are generous with them and for those of us who are maybe a bit stingy I pray that you would transform our hearts in ways that allow us to use what we have to alleviate suffering Lord, we know uh, that our efforts are not going to erase poverty, but that's not what you called us to do. You called us to see the needs in front of us and meet them. Lord, we know that even Jesus said, well, the poor you will always have with you. We know that. And so those of us who are completists or perfectionists, that uh, issue, that that hope is in the way of us meeting the need. We want to uh, conquer the problem but you've not called us to do that all of us you've called us to meet the need in front of us Lord, there there's some of us here that uh, work in these areas in missional ways in organizational ways in administrative ways and governmental ways and so we pray that you give us the wisdom to address these problems uh, from many different levels But even as we do work like that, Lord, help us to never step over a Lazarus and help us to see the need in front of us and do what we can to alleviate suffering. Lord, we believe that when we do that, we take your love to people who have experienced pain and struggle. And we can take your love because we have received it. And so Lord, in the middle of our own pain and struggle, we receive your love. And we believe that you are with us today. And that you are present. And for the hearts that are hurting and broken and hopeful and discouraged, your presence takes us to safe places. So help us to trust you. Declare your goodness, receive it into our hands and our hearts so that we can give it freely to a world that's in anguish, that's in torment. Help us to bring light to dark places this week because you are good in so many ways. And so we declare that with these lyrics, Lord, we ask that you would seal these truths deep in our heart. In the name of Jesus, we all say together, amen.